are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. It's good to see y'all. Glad you have come to uh, gather with us. If you're a guest of ours, special welcome. Uh, we are in the middle, kind of toward the end, actually, of a series on the book of Exodus. And so uh, this is actually a second part sermon. Last week was part one. And so if you missed it, which I know a lot of you did because we were a little lighter, uh, you can go back and listen to it because uh, there's some things there that will be helpful for today. But um, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 25, really through 31, kind of jumping around a little bit. Um, I remember back in 1987 when I got my first Walkman, all right? And this, I know that for the, the, the modern generation, they don't know what that is, but it, this was a profound thing, okay? And this thing was tricked out. Uh, it was a Sony, okay? It wasn't one of those cheap, like, Radio Shack versions. This was, like, the top of the line Sony. It was bright yellow, so everyone could see it. Um, it had, big thing back then, auto reverse, Okay, I mean, which is like, oh, it was unbelievable. Didn't have the little mega bass button. Remember the mega bass? No one knew what that did. I think it was just a little switch. Uh, but didn't have that. But autoverse, and here was the, the, the creme little creme of this thing. It was solar powered. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> you could solar powered charge this thing. And, and it ran like for like 12 minutes on a, on a whole charge, right? It actually was, it was a lot cooler than it worked. Okay, but man, you just put this thing on your waistband, you hook it on your waistband, it had the cool fold-up yellow Sony earphones, not the, the ones that didn't bend up, I mean, these folded up and put in your pocket, you put that on your waistband, you put some, some aviators on and some Chuck Taylors, and you were rocking like docking, that was it, man, it was, it was the bomb. But here's the thing, as, as great as that thing was in 1987, most of you look back and think, that thing's archaic. In fact, I looked, I, I Googled it this week. You can get one for $700 on eBay. All right, $700, um, same version. But it's archaic. I mean, most of the younger generation will never know the fear and trepidation of taking a tape out of your, of your uh, Walkman and seeing it all tore down. This is your favorite mixtape, and you're like, oh my goodness, no. And have to get a pencil out and slowly twist. You'll never know that, right? You'll never know what it is to listen through an entire album without being able to skip a song, right? right? But, but it's archaic because we got modern stuff, right? We got new stuff. Um, but what that was then, that was a temporary fix, a temporary need to, a, to something that we wanted, right? We wanted to have our music with us wherever we went. And so that was, at the time, it was, it was it, where it was at. It, it was perfect. Now... It's archaic. We're like, oh my goodness, it's crazy. We have so much more now. All right, here's the thing. In 30 years from now, whatever we have now, you'll look back and be like, can you believe we carried our phones around with us and had music on them? I mean, really? It'll be something new. I mean, who knows what it'll be? Maybe it'll be like nanobots in your brain that are playing your music. I don't know. I mean, if you have the vaccine, you already got the nanobots. I mean, that's the way it is. <laughs> Sorry. I, I just, I'm, not, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm just saying, you know. But who knows? It's a, it's a temporary fix for what we want. And, when we, and that's what really last week, that's what the tabernacle was. It was God's way in a, in a walkman type way to meet man's most pressing need. What was that? God's presence with them. 
And, and because they couldn't get to him because he is holy and he is distinct, he comes to them. And it's a walk, man, but it's a temporary thing, right? It's not where it's going to end, but what we needed was God's presence with us and that's what he did in a limited way. But in that limited way, what it did, we saw this last week, it pointed to the one who would fulfill the entire scripture. It pointed, this tabernacle was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the better tabernacle. And so here's kind of a high overview of last week. If you weren't here, here's kind of this. The tabernacle uh, was broken into three sections. You had the outer court, the holy place and the holy of holies, right? The outer court is where the regular Joe could go. That's as far as you could go. You could come to that altar, that first thing there, but that's as far as you could go. The holy place was where the, te- where the priests would go and the most holy place, the holy of holies, was where the high priest once a year. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And, and it was a picture of, of what Jesus would do and, and who he was. And so here's a, a picture of the structure. You started at that gate, that, that gate there is at the bottom. There's one way in, one way out. And it points to the fact that you want to get to the presence of God, you want access to God, there's only one way. Jesus says, I am the door. You gotta enter through me. It's the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so once you went through that gate, that one gate, the first thing you would see would be that altar, that huge, massive altar where atonement for sin was made. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He is the propitiation. He is the satisfying wrath. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the next thing you see is that laver, that bowl, looks like a bird bath where the priest would wash, constantly wash, constantly wash, sacrifice, wash, sacrifice, wash, go into the holy place, wash. And it pictures that Jesus is the one who cleanses us from sins. He is the one who washes his church with the water and the word. And then once you went into that holy place, you look to your left and there's that lampstand with those seven lamps that pictures like a tree. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. You look to your right, there's that table with bread on it. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. You look straight ahead, there's that little altar of incense where the smoke is going up, picturing the prayers and the intercession of the saints. Jesus said, I'm the one who lives continuously, so I continuously intercede. And then there's that veil with the cherubim on it that separate the holy place. And Jesus, when he is sacrificed, that veil is torn from top to bottom. And you go in and then there's the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim on top and the, and the presence of God resting in that room. Uh, and that blood was shed and put on the mercy seat on top for the atonement of sin on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And Jesus pictures it all. Now there's access to the Holy of Holies. And so the tabernacle, one of the, the main idea was to point us to Christ. But there's other things involved in the tabernacle I wanna talk about today. Because it's gonna force, when these, these priests and these people were inside, it's gonna force them to be reminded of something. Something from the past, but also something in the future. Where this ultimately is all going, right? Wherever the presence of God is, and the people of God are in the presence of God, it means something. So for, on God's timeline of redemption, the tabernacle is how he dwelt with his people. It's different now and it's gonna be different then. But it always means something for us. And so what I wanna do today is I wanna show you, yes, the tabernacle pointed to Jesus, but it's pointed to some other things. So I wanna highlight those. And then I wanna talk about what does the presence of God with us mean? Because it means something. It, it does something. We're not just filling a room up, singing some songs. What does it mean for us the presence of God. What is the implication in light of what happened before and in light of where this is all going? And so we, we left off last week. I highlighted all those pieces of the tabernacle. I left out one significant piece of that whole six chapters, right? 
In fact, remember Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights and God is giving him the instructions for this tabernacle. Uh, One third of all those instructions deals with one specific thing. More than he deals with with the Ark of the Covenant, more than when he deals with with the Holy of Holies. Two whole chapters, 80 plus verses he spends on this one idea. And it is gonna be key for us when we talk about the implications of what does it mean God with us, right? And it's the instruction on God's priests, God's high priests and his working priests. He's gonna talk about what they wear. He's gonna talk about how they are set apart. And so chapter 28 and I'll kind of run through quickly, is the description of Aaron and his sons. Remember, the Levites were the tribe that were gonna be working in the tabernacle. And in the Levites, there was that one line of family that came from Aaron. And they were the priests, and the high priest came from the line of Aaron. And he's gonna spend all of chapter 28 talking about what they're supposed to wear. And then chapter 29, how they're gonna be set apart. So he starts off, he says, bring near Aaron, your brother, his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithlamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, Here, notice, for glory and for beauty. The idea is this, they are going to stand out. You're not gonna be able to miss these dudes. It's gonna be evident who they are. Right? Evident who they are. And, and, and all of chapter 28 is kind of the, a description of the high priest and the priest. Here, let me give you a, a picture of, of what the high priest garb looked like. Here it is. Okay. He didn't know I was going to do that. All right, this is an overview of, of the outfit. And again, walking through, if you walk through the chapter, you have several things that are talked about. Okay, so you got this, you got... Uh, they're crafted for beauty and glory. There's this blue robe underneath, right? And then there's this thing, kind of the main piece is this ephod. It's like an apron that goes over this blue robe. And this ephod has two onyx stones on each shoulder. And on each one, six of the tribes are engraved on these things. And it holds the whole thing together. Then there's this breast piece that has 12 stones. You see it? One for each of the tribe of Israel. And each one has a name of a tribe written on it. The idea was that Aaron was carrying the people of God close to his heart as a memorial. And he was carrying them on his shoulders as he enters in the Holy of Holies. Because the priest was God's representative to man, but it's also man's representative to God. Right? So both are there. And behind that breast piece, there's these two little rocks. All right? The Umin and Thumin. We don't even know what they were. I mean, there's all these guesses, but we don't really have a description. We know that they, they were used to determine God's will, right? So if we're like, oh, we're supposed to go left or right. Okay, let's roll the bones kind of thing. Roll the stones in which way God casts the lot, then that's the way we go. That's before the Holy Spirit and the word of God, that's how they determined what God wanted them to do. And then there was golden bells around the bottom of, their, of this apron so that everywhere the high priest go, you could hear him. Right, you just couldn't miss him. You couldn't miss by by seeing him. You couldn't miss by hearing him. Everywhere you go, and then this turban that he wore, there was a gold plate on this turban that said "Holy to the Lord." It was distinct, set apart. You couldn't miss this guy, 
And even the priests, not the, that weren't the high priests, they weren't as ornate, but Aaron says, he says, Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make for them for glory and beauty. Again, same idea. And you shall put on them Aaron, your brother, and his sons with them, and they shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, and they will serve me as priests. So there, theirs wasn't as ornate, but it looks something like this. There's still a hat. There's still a sash. There's still this turban. They were distinct. The idea, the big picture is they stood out. You noticed them. Couldn't miss them. You weren't like, is that guy a priest? I don't know. He's wearing Jordash today. I don't know, you know? You, you knew the priests. That's chapter 28. Now, chapter 29, God gives them instructions on how are we gonna get these guys ready for ministry? How are we gonna set them apart? How are we gonna make them holy? And you can read through it. I did it several times this week. It's exhausting. It is exhausting. The detail. Let me just highlight it. You got to take one bull. You got to take two rams. You got to wash them. Then you got to anoint Aaron with his garb on and oil. Then you take the bull and Aaron puts his hands on it and confesses his sins. And then he kills the bull and he takes out its guts and he throws some against here and he burns some over here. Then they take the ram and he puts his hands on it again and he confesses his sin and they take some of that blood and they throw it against the altar and they put it inside, right? And they take the entrails and do this. And then they take the other ram, and they take the blood of that one and they put it on his right earlobe and they put it on his right thumb and then they take his sons and they put it on their right big toe and there's all this blood on the toe and on the ear and, and it's just all this stuff and they take all these cakes and this wheat and these wave offerings and you take the ram of ordination and you kill it and you boil it and you eat this and there's seven days of stuff and every morning and every night there's sacrifices. It's just this, it's intense, right? It's just all this rigmarole, all these rules that God sets up to set them apart, to make them different, to make them distinct, so to make them evident. And it closes chapter 29. He says, I will consecrate the tent of meeting in the altar. Aaron and his sons, I will consecrate, set apart, that means serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people, there it is, of Israel, and I will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. It's repeated twice. It's significant. I am the Lord, their God. And I read that, and I'm like, that's tougher than seminary. I mean, that's, that's just, it's just all these details. I'm thankful that, that where we are, I don't live in where they're at on God's redemptive timeline, that I'm not living in that time. But here's, the, again, big picture point. These people were distinct. They were set apart, and everybody knew it. They knew who they were. Their job was to represent the people from God. They were God's rep to the people and they were the people's represented to God. And they were perpetually doing two things in the tabernacle. These words are repeated through the Pentateuch. They were working it and keeping it. All right. They were avad and shamar, two Hebrew words. Those are significant. We'll come back to them. Right. But that's what they were doing. In a limited way, in a limited way, God was dwelling in a walkman type of way as God was dwelling with them. But as they did that, not only were they picturing the Messiah who would come, but there's also other things that God is doing. He's pointing them back to something and he's hinting and dropping hints at things. And it's significant for us. Looking back now, we see this with open eyes because whatever Paul says was written beforehand was for our instruction and encouragement so that we might have hope. So these things bring us hope. Let me take you back to the beginning what this thing is pointing to because this is significant all the way back to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter two. God, chapter one, creates everything. Chapter two is a recap of day six. And it says this, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. There's a, gar there's a place called Eden and he puts a garden in Eden, in the east. And he put the man whom he had formed out of the 
ground the Lord God made up to spring. Every tree that's pleasant to the sight, good for food, tree of life was in the midst, a tree of knowledge, good to evil is there. A river flows out of Eden to water the garden and it became four rivers. So you got a bunch of details. There's a bunch of trees. There's rivers flowing out. Now, this is significant because a river flows uphill or downhill? Okay, a river flows uphill or downhill? <laughs> downhill, which means Eden is higher elevation, right? That's just, that's just geography. Rivers flow down. So Eden is higher up. That's significant, right? Because the temple is gonna be on the mountain. Eden is on some sort of hill or a mountain. That's gonna be significant, right? Verse eight, you jumped, oh, and, and, and the... Uh, Adam and Eve were placed in the garden. This is where they met God. This is where his presence was. And they did two things there. The Lord God took man, put him in the garden of Eden. What did he do? He worked it and he kept it. Same Hebrew words. He aved and he shamar. Same thing the priests do. In the presence of God, both are doing the same thing. And all is well until chapter three and sin comes and they reject God. And so God is walking in the garden. And what did Adam and Eve do? They hide from his what? His presence. And he says, okay, Eve, what's going on? Adam, what's going on? Adam blames Eve. Eve blames a snake. The snake doesn't have a leg to stand on, so the snake's out. All right, and, and God says, okay, now you're out. And what does he do in chapter three, verse 24? He drove out the man out of the east of the garden. He placed cherubim with a flaming sword that turned away everyone to guard the tree of life. Why? Because if they eat the tree of life in a fallen state, they live forever in a fallen state. So God guards the tree of life with what? Cherubim. Remember, he sends them out to the east. If you wanna get God, you gotta go west. Remember the gate to the tabernacle? You gotta go west. It's all picturing something, right? You cannot miss the similarities. What God is doing in the tabernacle in a, in a subtle way is he's pointing them back to what? To Eden, to where the presence of God was. The tabernacle is a subtle picture of Eden, Right? Where's God's presence? It's in the Garden of Eden. Where's God's presence? It's in the tabernacle. Eden's on a hill. Tabernacle is gonna be on a hill. It's gonna be placed on the holy hill of Zion. Right? You gotta go west to get to God. You gotta go west to get back into the garden. Right? Even in the description of Solomon's temple, there's all sorts of trees and imagery. To, to get into the Holy of Holies, what do you gotta walk by? You gotta walk by something that looks like the tree of life. This lampstand. In the Ark of the Covenant is what? The tablets of stone, the wisdom of God, the law of God. In the Garden of Eden, there's a tree that gives wisdom. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It makes people wise. All these similarities. Adam and Eve are God's representative on earth. They represent earth to God. They represent God to earth. They've been given dominion. They rule. The priests represent the people to God and God to the people. It's the same thing. They're both Aved, they're both shamar. They're both working, they're both keeping in the presence of God. Which, by the way, one of the things that's missing in the tabernacle, that in every other religious building of that day, uh, that it doesn't have, every other temple, every other place of worship would have images of the God. The gods of Egypt would have images and statues of birds and, and animals. The god Dagon and all these, you know, the Philistines, they had all the images. In God's house, there's no images. Why? Because his people have been stamped with the image of God. They represent God. They don't need images. They don't need anything else, which is why in the church, we don't have images. We are the image of God, right? We are. 
but you cannot miss the similarities. What God is doing in the tabernacle in a subtle way, he's pointing to Jesus clearly, but he's subtly pointing, he's re-Edenizing his people in a walkman type of way, but he's, he's bringing them back to Eden a little bit because that's what happens in the presence of God. And then the Lord Jesus comes 1,400 years later, right? And, and, and the redemptive timeline moves. And let me read just as a reminder and just let you be washed by the word of what the Lord Jesus does in Hebrews chapter 10, all right? I don't have it on the screen. Just listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. He said, we have, by that we have been sanctified, set apart through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he, underlining in your mind, sat down at the right hand of God. When Moses and Aaron, if they would have heard that, he did what? He offered one offering and then he sat down. You know what one a piece of furniture is missing in that tabernacle? There's not a chair to be found. There's no love seat, there's no green room, there's no couches because the work of the priest never ended. Sacrifice, wash, sacrifice, wash, change the bread, change the oil, sacrifice, wash, sacrifice, wash, change the bread, change the oil, sacrifice, wash. It was constant. Moses and Aaron are running rampant. They're getting like 30,000 steps a day on their watch. Jesus does one offering and what? Sits down. Why? Because it's donezo. It's over. One sacrifice. He continues. But when Christ offered all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, set apart. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness for us after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their heart. I will write them on their minds. And he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Not only, there's no need for tablets anymore. God says, I'm gonna put my law in their heart. I'm gonna put my spirit inside them. We don't need a little two rocks to kind of spin them and see what God's will is. We have the scripture. We have the spirit of God living within us. Aaron and Moses would have been blown away. The Old Testament states, Daniel, David would have been blown away with what we have. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, are you kidding me? Only one guy gets to go in once a year with fear and trepidation. Now everybody, even Gentiles, enter the holy place? Absolutely, by the blood of Christ, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house, let us draw near with a true heart and full of assurance with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Every Gentile can come in. Anybody can come in. This, this is the idea. Where we are on the redemptive timeline is no longer is God's presence localized. We are the presence of God. I, I want you to just grasp this because I think we know it, but we don't know it. The same God who ripped the mountain apart that people were hiding their face from, were trembling from. The same God who parted the Red Sea and brought the plagues and gave manna every day and the glory filled the temple and people were in awe. That same God, his spirit dwells in you right now. You, you and I, in these broken, flawed, high cholesterol filled temples. That's where we are on this redemptive timeline. 
right? Closer than Moses and Aaron. I mean, it's a CD player versus a Walkman, but it's so much better. But it's not done. As good as it is and as much better as it is in a Walkman as an hour of solar power life, it's still limited. In fact, John, we saw this in last year, he says, we are God's children right now. But what we will be has not yet appeared. When we, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him. This is not the end game. This is better than the Walkman, but it's not done yet. We're not in Eden yet. But let me fast forward real quick and show you where this is all going. You gotta fast forward through a bunch of stuff that still has to happen. You gotta have, the temple has to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. All right, you're like the temple of Jerusalem. That's what Thessalonians says. That's what the first half of Revelation says, that the temple will somehow be rebuilt right where that temple mosque is right now. And there's gonna be an antichrist and all these tribulation and all these wars and all these famines and all this stuff. And at the end of all things, you go all the way to the end. When Satan is cast into the lake of fire, there's a great white throne where all people are judged that do not know Christ. After that, Revelation 21, it says this. Read it last week as we close. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. This one's done, melted away, gone. And the sea was no more. So if you are a fan of the beach and you're like, I can't be in heaven without a beach, you're gonna be in heaven without a beach, sorry. But it must be good. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle, literally the tabernacle of God is with man. He will tabernacle with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away tears. There'll be no more death and pain and suffering. All this is gone. This is where it's all going, right? And if you read down again through the chapter, let me just highlight some things. It's an amazing chapter to read. Verse 10, you, you know, it's on the slide. He carried away, me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God, its radiance like a rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal, had a high wall, 12 gates, the 12 gates, 12 angels, and the gates' names, the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, north three gates, south three gates, west three gates, the wall had 12 foundations. There's the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold. I love this. To measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square. It's a square. Its length, the same as its width. He measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. That is 1,400 miles. So this city is 1,400 miles wide, 14 miles long, and it actually has a 1,400 mile wall. Now, I did a little research on my Google Maps this week. Just to give you a little perspective. That's from here to Amarillo, Texas. That's the closest city I could get. No one ever knows where Amarillo is because it's in the middle of the desert, but it's far. It's beyond Dallas, not quite to Arizona. That's just one side of the city, all right? It's that long, it's that wide, it's that high. That's the new Jerusalem, right? He measured its cubit, the wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurements. Wall is jasper, gold, like glass. The foundations of the wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. You can read through the jewels. By the way, those jewels are all found in Aaron's breastplate, right? And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each gate made of a single pearl. The street was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city. Why? Because its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, the Lamb of God. 
You took away the sin of the world. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. The glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut and there will never be night and they will bring into glory and the honor of the nations but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable false but those whose name are written in the Lamb's book of life. In chapter 22, then the angel showed me the river of water of life just like there's rivers in Eden, there's rivers in heaven, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city on either side of the river, the tree of life. Where'd we see that? Eden, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations and no longer will be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, just like holy to the Lord is on the forehead of the priests. And the night will be no more. They will need no lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever. Where did this thing start? Adam and Eve ruling and reigning, having dominion. Where did this thing end? Ruling and reigning with the tree of life, with a river of life, in the presence of God. Eden is back. And it's all, sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's clear, but it's all been what God has been doing from the beginning. That's where it's going. That's where he's been pointing his people. Right? It started in Eden in the presence of God. Man wrecks it. Then so the redemptive timeline, God has a tabernacle, which is limited. It's a Walkman. And now he has the church age, which is, is a little bit better. It's a CD player. It's an MP3 player. But eventually it's, it's the end. It's, it's paradise restored because of the lamb, because of Christ. And what's the point? Why do I tell us this? Right? Is it just so we can be like, yay, we're all going to heaven? yes. But here's the point, and this is the point I want us to grasp, right? Is that wherever we are on the timeline, Adam and Eve, priests, high priests, the church, even in the future, you have a job. The priests, Adam and Eve priests, the priest priest, the church priest, the royal priesthood we're called, even in Revelation we're called the priests, always have a job. Always. And what is your job? Two things I want us to get, real quick. Number one, we should look like priests. And I'm talking about wearing a collar or wearing a tie. I'm not talking about that. What made those priests distinct? You could see externally they were priests. And I'm not saying we should dress nice and never swear and do all these things. Yeah, those are fine, but that's not the point. The point is this. You have, like they are clothed with beauty and glory. Jesus's church has been clothed with the beauty and glory of the righteousness of Christ. And everybody ought to recognize it. Everybody out there should see that you and I are priests. It should be evident, just like it was from them. This is why the language in the New Testament constantly says, put off the old and put on the new. Take off the old man and put on Christ constantly you see this language. Something external should mark us as God's royal priesthood. And it shouldn't just be that we go to church on Sunday for an hour and 15 minutes, right? I listened to Matt Chandler this week and he, he made this statement. I said, that's great. And I'll share it with you. He says, since we are all priests, you don't get to punt on your priesthood. It's not, oh, that's Fowler and the staff's job. Oh, contraire, mon frere. You are a priest. You don't get to punt your priesthood because you're like, well, I'm just a, I just go to church. I, no, no, no. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation 
You have been sanctified by the blood of the lamb and you don't get to escape your priesthood. It should be evident. Evident. It should be an external, right, not external righteousness and I'm earning God's favor. It's, Jesus used the language, you are salt, you are light, you are distinct. So you're a priest. As a priest, you're not worried. This will speak to some of y'all. You're not worried about who's in charge of the country and in the government. You know why? Because you know who's in charge of the country and the government. Because the king of kings and the Lord of lords is the true king and he will rule with a rod of iron. And so your agenda should be that of the king, not of your favorite politician. That's your agenda. I'm not saying don't vote and don't care. What I'm saying is that shouldn't ruffle your feathers because it don't matter. Because every knee will bow, every tongue will confess and answer to the king of kings. So you don't gotta worry. That's what a priest does. A priest doesn't fret about what everybody thinks about him and my opinion, your opinion and getting likes and what everyone, making everyone like me. You know why? Because we have a heavenly father who is crazy about us. We have a savior who loved us so much that he died for us. We have a spirit inside of us that says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you forever. I have sealed you for the day of redemption. So you don't have to worry about people's opinions and what they think and getting likes because you have a God who is for you. If God is for you, who can be against you? As a priest, you don't have to strive to get the newest, the best, the more, the this, the that, the this, the that. I gotta have this, I gotta have this much from retirement, I gotta this, 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 and worry about stuff so much. Do you have your daily bread? Did anyone sleep outside not on purpose last night? Some of you camped, okay, fine. Did anyone not eat on purpose yesterday? That's enough. Because you're supposed to be storing up treasure in heaven where it matters. Not when, so your kids can go and take everything to uh, donate to the Salvation Army as soon as you're gone, right? That's what a priest does. A priest, when they, when they face the tough stuff and the bad stuff and the stuff that's hard or persecution, it's not a shot. You know why? Because your king told you they did it to me, they're gonna do it to you. But you're gonna have hard stuff. You're gonna struggle. There's gonna be wrestling with stuff. Don't be shocked. In fact, if people don't like you because you love me, you are blessed. That's what a priest knows. A priest is thankful in a world that is not content. Again, did you eat today? Yesterday? You, you rode in a car here? You got money for lunch? Four for four at Wendy's? Whatever? You're thankful. You're content in a world that's not. You're joyful in a world that all they wanna do is complain and talk about the bad stuff. You are loving in a world that all they wanna do is divide. You forgive when the world wants to hold a grudge. You encourage when the world wants to tear down. You work hard in a world that wants to slack off. This is what a priest does. A priest is for and tells the truth when the world wants to lie. The priests have integrity when the world is full of corruption. The priest wants to be helpful in a world that wants to hurt. A priest wants to care in a world that wants to be selfish. A priest sings when the world whines. A priest cares about what defiles him because it matters. And so I guard my eyes and what I put in my brain and in my heart. I guard my purity because it matters. I guard my marriage because it's a picture of Jesus and his church and it matters because I'm a priest. Right? I guard my integrity. 
I guard my mouth and my words because from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. Brothers, it ought not to be this way. So I build and I don't tear because I'm a priest, right? I flee immorality. I reject idolatry and enmity and jealousy and division and strife and drunkenness and the works of the flesh, which are evident. Why? Because the works of the spirit are evident too, which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control because I'm a priest. That's what I do. And here's the point. A priest blesses, right? Not a, woo, not that priest. You are a blessing. You're meant to be. The church is meant to be a blessing. And so the idea is wherever you go, you make things better. And ask yourself, do I? I was thinking about this morning. We are supposed to be like Tabasco sauce. Tabasco makes things better. Or Cholula or Texas Pete or whatever. Right? It just makes it better. The church of Jesus makes things better. You bless your boss. You bless your parents. You bless your kids. You bless your neighbors. You bless those in your community group. You bless those you are rooming with. You bless, you bless, you bless because you are a priest and that's what priests do. And it's evident. That's, that's the point because not just where you've been from, where you're going. You bless, right? And so ask yourself, am I a blessing period, to the people around me. If not, better get busy, priests, because this is what God's called you to do. You are to work and to keep the tabernacle in the presence of God. That's the first thing. We look like a priest. And again, this is what Peter says. He says, talking about the day of the Lord when everything is destroyed, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. Heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and its works and all will be exposed. Since this is gonna happen, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? It's, it's a rhetorical question. <laughs> what do you think? Since it's gonna happen, he says this, I'll tell you, holy to the Lord, set apart. You are a priest. That's the first thing. Look like a priest. And then second thing, real simple, work like a priest. Do the work of blessing others. See, wherever the timeline is, whether it's Eden, whether it's tabernacle, whether it's temple, whether it's church, even in the kingdom, do you realize you are not gonna be sitting around in the kingdom on your tail, you know, writing new praise songs. Oh, the gardener ought to sing this one. I just wrote it. It's great. We're not gonna be sitting on clouds with our harps. And that's not the kingdom. You're gonna be doing stuff. You're gonna be working. You're gonna be serving. You are gonna be worshiping, but it just won't be work like work is now. It'll be fulfilling and joyful and it'll be perfect like it was in the garden. It won't be hard. It'll bring joy and contentment like you've never experienced in your life. There's always been working and serving and worship. It's just sin hinders it. And since we are in this, this period, the church age, the, co- the new covenant, right? You have a job as a priest. You are the bride of Christ. You are the church of Jesus. CBC and all others like it, you have a job to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And if Clint was here, this is the language he would use. He kind of encouraged the staff with this week. The church is God's plan A. We're not plan B. We're not an audible. Well, I gotta use this now. You are the plan. We are the plan of God right now. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 3. 
He says, talking of his ministry, I am the least of all the saints. Grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through what? The church, us, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. How is God's wisdom made known? We are plan A, people, priests. It is your and my job, right? Because it's all heading to Revelation 21 and 22. That's where it's all going. And here's what you have to see. Your priesthood, is an, there's an urgency to it. This is not, this is a serious job. It just is. This is why you can't punt your priesthood. Because everybody you know, everyone you've ever seen will spend eternity in one of two places, with God in heaven or apart from God in hell. Period, you can say, I don't know if I believe in hell. It doesn't matter what you believe in, it's what Jesus teaches. And so the bottom line is every single person who ever existed will either spend the joy of eternity, unsearchable riches, unsearchable glory, unfathomable joy, because at his right hands are pleasure forevermore, or they will spend it apart from Christ forever in the lake of fire. And so you don't get to punt on this priesthood. You are God's plan A in, in, in doing his work and making known his name. God has you around for a reason. There's no chairs for you. There's a chair for Jesus. He seats at the right hand. You work and you serve and you declare the excellencies. Paul says you are his ambassadors as though God was making an appeal through you. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That's your job at your office, at your school, in your home, in your neighborhood, with your buddies, on your Facebook chats, on your whatever. Because priesthood is a serious business. It's a serious business, right? There's an urgency to it. Because Jesus says, surely I am coming quickly. And we don't know what that means. Quickly is 2,000 years now. But it'll happen and it'll be done. So there's an urgency for the church of Jesus. And you can't convert anybody, I'm not saying that, but you should be, you wanna be found faithfully serving him when he comes. And there's people in your life that need Jesus. Have you prayed for him at all? Who in your office, going through a rough divorce, children are wayward, there's cancer, who are you praying for? Who are you purposely reaching, loving on, serving, trying to be a blessing? This is the job of the church. You don't get to punt it, right? You don't get to punt it. It's a serious business because Paul says that through us, God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Through us. And the fragrance is an aroma of life for some and it's an aroma of death for some. That's between God and them. But your job is to be the aroma of Christ. And that aroma, that's again, the picture of the incense, the picture of all those things pointing back to the tabernacle. I just don't want us to think that we're done when we leave at 10, 15. This is when it starts, y'all. And this is for me too, because I'm a lousy priest. So like a lousy dad, I'm a lousy husband, I'm a lousy pastor. But praise God that we have a high priest who wasn't lousy. We have a heavenly father who is perfect. We have a spirit dwells with us permanently despite our sin. We have a brother, our savior, who loves us dearly. And so he says, get busy living, get busy dying, right? Get busy serving priests. That's the tabernacle in two weeks. Points to Jesus, points to the Eden, points to the kingdom, and it gives us a job. Go look like a priest, 
go work like a priest. Let's pray. Why don't you guys stand with me? Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word, for the hope of the gospel. And Lord, you got a bunch of wrecked priests in here, but that's great because you are perfect and we need you and we need your presence. And so wherever we're at, uh, just in life, in in a season, uh, use us. Let us leave this room knowing we are vessels of honor that you wanna use for your glory. And we will never regret that when we are in your presence in that massive city uh, for all eternity, experiencing the joy that you have provided for us through Christ. May we worship him. May we be faithful to him uh, because he has done everything for us. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.